This is why I should never be allowed to mute my mic. So we learned that lesson. All right. Thank you so much for that reading of the text that puts us where we need to be. But before we start on that, let me just thank a couple folks who, uh, who took the appeal for chocolate last Sabbath very seriously. Uh, the, the Huda Barrett family, thank you so much for a lovely box of uh, Godiva chocolates. Very much appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, uh, Russell and Doris, thank you so much for sending chocolates from your favorite place in Illinois. So this has been a, a wonderful experience, and I thank you so much for that, and it was nice to see it added at the top of the list there. I'm, I'm certain that uh, my wife Alicia, watching in Florida today, was a little chagrined to see that at the very top of the list, but, uh, but we got half the family here, so that's important. I'm glad Ariel's joining us today, so I have Ariel and Gable with me today. Uh, the other part of the family is all spread out in various other places, but I got half of them here, so that's a good thing. makes me happy. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. We pray, Lord, that your spirit now will, will speak to us from your word in a way that we can hear and understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go back to what we just read, back to this story from the book of John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. One of the interesting things about John as he writes the book, he will choose certain, certain segments to, to tell kind of a detailed story uh, chronologically determined. I mean, we know Jesus' ministry lasted roughly three and a half years, but it's kind of interesting. John spends quite a bit of time here on an early week of Jesus' life. So you have on the next day and so forth in chapter one, and then it says on the third day, and, and roughly, it's roughly a week described in the first part of these first two chapters. And what's happening here is Jesus is calling his disciples for the first time, and they're beginning to gather around him. And you remember we talked about Last Sabbath, we talked about the whole issue of being able to recognize Jesus for who he was. The passage in John chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But it also says he was in the world, but though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So the great challenge here in sending the Redeemer, one of the great challenges in sending the Redeemer was that he could be recognized, but not in a way that people would follow for the wrong reasons. You know, if he came down as a dazzling angel of light, that, then everyone would be drawn to him as a dazzling being of light. But that was not what God was going for. He was not going for, for the big uh, impress us with the visual show. He wanted our hearts. He wanted us to choose to follow so, so he veiled the divinity of Jesus within the reality so that those who believed and followed followed because of what Jesus was about, not because of what he looked like. And it even will get into, into the messiness of, of signs on the one hand is revealing who he is, but then on the other hand, 
signs as magic tricks to accomplish the things that we as humans want Jesus to do. And, and you will see these complications play out as you go along. But here it is. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, not any more detail than that, but probably contained within that detail is enough for us to understand that this family getting, this, this couple getting married somehow was connected to Jesus' family, to Jesus' mother. There's even some speculation among scholars that, that it might even have been John who was getting married. I think that's, that, that's pretty wild speculation, but it's an interesting thought. And the notion here that, that maybe Jesus' family was somehow related to this family and, and people use that to explain why Mary might have felt some responsibility for what was going on here. But, but again, that's not in the text. We don't have that in the story. That's just kind of what people have tried to put together from their study of the culture, their study of the time. Why would Jesus be there? Why would the disciples be there? Why would Mary care what was going on? So whatever the actual reason was, Jesus is there. His mother is there. And a problem arises. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited, verse 2, to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Now to us, that, that could potentially sound a little pejorative in his response, but but, but the, the phrase there, woman, implies no disrespect. It, it, was, it was a common way of addressing with respect um, his mother here. Uh, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This is a theme you will also hear that will come out throughout the book uh, of John, is this idea that Jesus' hour had not yet come. Well, what was Jesus' hour? Well, we, don't, we don't actually know at this point. If we're just reading through for the first time, we don't know what that's implying. And it will go along and it'll say, later on it'll say, they tried to seize him, but they could not because his hour had not yet come. What is his hour? What is this great moment? There'll be an amazing point near the book, end of the book where he will encounter some, some Greeks who are there in Jerusalem and they will ask to see him, and he will at that point say, my hour has come. But we'll get to that later on as we go forward. But so, so he says, my hour has not yet come. But verse 5 is very interesting. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, that might not naturally to us follow what's taken place so far, because it kind of sounded like Jesus said, why are you involving me in this? This is not a good time for me. But she's like, you do whatever he says. It's kind of like she already knew he was going to do something. What it was, I don't know that she had any idea. But she knew he was going to do something. So we go on, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now that's a lot. I mean, you think about you buy milk 
if you buy milk, I don't know, maybe everybody out here buys some sort of milk alternative, but whatever it is, we used to buy milk in a gallon jug. You remember a gallon jug? Gallon jug is good size, isn't it? Weighs about eight pounds. These were stone jars that held 20 to 30 gallons. How much, how much gas can you put in your car? 20 gallons? Can you put 20 in there? Okay, if you can, it, these, these stone jars held that plus maybe 10 gallons more. I mean, these were, these were good size jars. Stone jars. Why did they have these around? Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. One of the big things uh, that, that had come through what Moses had given the people, what God had given to Moses that was very important was this notion of clean and unclean. And it was important that, uh, that you were ceremonially clean to participate in the different things that went on. God had given this uh, intentionally as a way to help people understand that there is holiness, there is righteousness, there is purity, and it matters. And then maybe there's probably even a hygiene angle on it in a day before people really understood everything about uh, germs and everything else. The fact that God taught the people to wash their hands seems like a pretty, uh, pretty good thing to have done. So, but because of this and because the ceremony had developed, there were, there were often, these, often the need for a lot of water for ceremonial washing. So here were these six stone containers. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, let's reflect on this just a second. I don't know how many people were at this wedding. But I want you to think for a second about the quantity of wine that was produced here. You had six stone jars somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each. Meaning that when they all had been transformed, that was somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Now, assuming there were 120 people at the wedding, and I don't know that there were, that's a gallon apiece. I think that's what you call overabundance, right? Part of the reality that comes when we engage with Jesus and when we do things according to what he said, is not just a sufficiency, but often an overabundance. There was no reason for that much, particularly since the party was probably half over anyway. But now here, I mean, just to put it in terms of weight, that's a 1,000 pounds, 
How many people would it take to just carry it off? It's remarkable what's taking place here. And there's another amazing piece about it. This is taking place in these, in these ceremonial jars that were all about the, the cleansing of the people. But here's the reality. No amount of washing your hands with water removes the stain of sin, does it? You see, it was symbolic, but there was no power in the ceremonial water. It couldn't actually change anything. Now, 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 go down this road with me for just a second because there's some neat connections we can make here. First of all, remember back to Moses. When Moses went to Egypt, there was a sign he did for the sake of the people, the children of Israel, believing that God had sent him to do this great work of deliverance, right? Do you remember, do you remember what happened with the first plague? What happened in that first plague? He turned water into what? Into blood. Do you remember? The river was turned to blood. This was the first sign that Moses did. And this sign was there so that the people would believe that in fact God had sent him and he was on God's purpose. Now isn't it interesting that the first sign Jesus does so that the disciples will believe as he turns water into wine. Now what's the connection there? Well, do you remember when Jesus gets to the Last Supper? Do you remember when he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And what is the reality of the cup, the reality of the blood? When we receive symbolically in the communion service the cup, we are receiving the blood of Jesus which cleanses us and takes away our sin. So in what, was, what were the jars that Jesus turned the water into wine? They were jars for ceremonially cleansing. And so Jesus was saying, by this sign... Look, you've got these jars here that will never make you clean. But I will fill them with something that will cleanse you from sin. Now, nobody understood that at the time. It was not a, a, a concept that anyone had even gotten close to understanding yet. It wouldn't be until it was all done that you could look back and say, wait a minute. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. All who receive this, all who receive will be truly cleansed. He's taking the old tired symbol and he's putting life into it and he's saying, this is what it's really all about. This is the transformation that can take place in you. But notice something interesting here. This great work he does goes unnoticed. Verse 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So here we go. The head of the people, the head of the banquet, Jesus has done this great work. He doesn't even know 
He doesn't recognize that in this is the miraculous work of God. See, this is that same problem, that same crisis from the beginning. Jesus has come to do this great work, but nobody seems to know what he's doing. Nobody seems to know who he is. Nobody seems to know what's going on. But it's okay this time, because Jesus' purpose was not to make a very visual reality for everybody that was there. His purpose in this, it says specifically in verse 11, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember, this is like the first week when he's just starting to get the team together. And this sign is for them. The service was for everyone that was at the wedding, but the sign was for the disciples. And you remember you get to the book of Acts and, and, and they're talking about after Judas uh, Judas is now gone and lost. And they say, we need to add another to our number. Someone else who witnessed everything from the beginning to the end. You see, the disciples were the literal witnesses of what Jesus did. This is what John is talking about in, in 1 John. He says, that which we saw from the beginning, which we touched with our hands, which our ears heard, our eyes saw, we know this is true, and we bear witness to you of what took place. So this is the larger context. And as is so often the case in the works of God, an amazing thing has happened, but most of the people have no idea. They don't know it happened, and they don't know what it means. <clears throat> but it has taken place, and for those who are willing to study and search, they can find out what it means. But I want to take you back to the beginning now, Back to verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So this really is the most important point I want you to take home with you today. I want you to listen and follow what Jesus' mother is saying here. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. That's the main point I want you to take home today. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Why? Well, even if you don't know for sure what he's going to do, even if you don't know for sure why he asks you to do it, even if you don't know for sure if you believe in him, because the servants, she says it to the servants, they don't have any reason to believe in him, but Mary said, do whatever he says. So they go ahead, they fill the jars, and a miraculous miracle occurs. I guess that's the same word twice, isn't it? Miraculous miracle. All right. Something amazing happens. This is what happens when we do what Jesus tells us to do. If the servants had said, no, we're not going to do that, nothing happens, right? But when you do what Jesus tells you to do, you never have any idea for sure what the outcome will be. You don't even always know why he's asking you to do what he's asking you. But if you do it, the opportunity is there for Jesus to do an amazing work. 
So what I want you to hear today and what I want you to take home is this reality. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Okay, that's tidy. That's simple. It's neat. But there's some assumptions behind it. So we need to back up and address these assumptions. Assumption number one. Jesus actually tells us to do things including things that he really needs us to do. Okay, that's an assumption there, right? We're assuming, for me to make the statement to you, I want you to do what Jesus is telling you, I'm assuming that Jesus currently is speaking to each of you as individuals and telling you things to do. That's a pretty big assumption, isn't it? But that's not my only assumption in saying that. I'm also assuming that it is possible for you to hear Jesus' voice, discern it from the other voices in the world, and it's also possible for you to obey. See, if I'm going to tell you, if Jesus tells you something, do it, then I'm assuming he tells you things, and I'm assuming you're capable of hearing his voice. But here's the third thing I'm assuming. That if, in fact, you will hear his voice, you will do what he tells you, then amazing things will happen and glory to God will be the result. So what I'm suggesting here is that it's possible for you to hear Jesus' voice. It's possible for you to obey it. And if you will, amazing things will happen for the kingdom of God. These are the assumptions behind me saying to you, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Do I have any basis to assume these things? Are these things true? There's an interesting phrase that occurs in the New Testament that Jesus states, and it'll also show up again. It shows up in various places in the gospel, and it'll show up again in Revelation. And the phrase goes like this. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, here's what's interesting about that. And this is a challenge to us, particularly uh, us as Seventh-day Adventists, because we come out of a tradition of, of passed-down knowledge and understanding. We are of the people who, who place a high confidence in, in what those before us have studied out and learned and determined. And we receive it from them and we receive it gladly from them. And whenever we're a little bit nervous about decision making, we go back to what they did. We try to figure out what they would have done. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a very good thing. Because God has spoken in the past, and he has spoken to the people of the past, and they have sought to follow his will, and the best of the things that he has told them have come down to us, because the things they did that were not his will, they tended to fall away. So yes, there's value in that. <clears throat> but we need to be very careful here. Because we run the risk of becoming people who value the genius of the past, but have no ability to discern the voice of God in our own day. An example of this will take place in the book of John later on in the story of the man born blind. And I'm just going to touch on it briefly because what happens here is the man is debating with the Pharisees 
And the Pharisees saying, we know God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The interesting crisis here is they have undying confidence in Moses who lived a long time ago and they never even met him. But they can't discern the reality that the Son of God is standing there on the earth right now where they are. That's a pretty sad reality, isn't it? When I'm convicted about what they knew in the past, but I have no ability to discern reality in my own day. Jesus will say, he will tell parables, and he'll get to the end of the parable, and he'll say, he who has an ear, let him hear. What I hear Jesus saying in this is that if we will be honest, fair, and open to the Holy Spirit, then we will be able to discern truth when we hear it. He who has an ear, let him hear. That was a little troubling, right? It's a little destabilizing. Because we like to think that we already have established the fullness of truth. But nothing could be further from the reality of what the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church actually believed. They had a phrase. Does anybody know what that phrase was? They called it present truth. And what present truth assumed was that we are living according to truth and believing according to truth as much as we understand it to this point. But it would be wrong for us to assume there is not more to know. Have we been faithful to that? Or have we just built walls around their present truth without actually learning ours. See, it does me no good to be faithful in their day. I don't live in their day. I have to be faithful in my day. And that means I have to still hear God's voice now. In my day. Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear. You find it again in Revelation. At the end of the letters to the seven churches, every one of those letters to the seven churches says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And the whole notion of the letters to the churches is the reality that Jesus speaks to the churches. He's still speaking to the churches today. And if we have an ear, then we will hear and we will obey. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. So can we hear and discern Jesus' voice? So there was a video that came out a few years ago uh, some of you may have seen it, but I want you to see it again. This is about a little over two minutes long. And, uh, and it's not the greatest quality video. I mean, you, you'll hear somebody shushing in the background. And it, it, but it illustrates this point extremely well. You see, John chapter 10, before we go to the video, I want to read you this passage. 
John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him, from a stranger. They will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Now, let me give you context on this. In the old villages, all the different people who lived in the village had sheep. But at night, they would bring them all to town and they put them in a common pen that was in the middle of the village. Everybody's sheep went into the common pen. And you're like, oh dear. How in the world can they get them separated the next day? Well, actually, it was very simple. Because each one of the shepherds would one by one come to the pen, and there was a gatekeeper, that was his job, to keep the sheep safe through the night. And each of the shepherds would come to the gate, and the gatekeeper would open it, and the shepherd would call. He would say, come on, sheep that belong to me. And every one of the sheep that belonged to him would look up and come out and follow him. And every one of the sheep that belonged to somebody else in town would stay in there. Why? Because sheep knew the voice of their shepherd. And when their shepherd called, they're like, oh, it's the guy that takes us to food. Let's go. It's the guy that leads us beside the still water. Let's go. And out they'd go. They'd come running after him. And they'd walk out and he'd lead his sheep out. They didn't follow anybody else because they knew his voice. Is this truth? This is what this video illustrates. I want you to watch this video. One more time. Oh my god. 
Was that cool or what? Oh my god! <laughs> you will never have the same again. Oh my god! I can't believe the video is coming. So it's a real thing. This illustration that Jesus is using here, why did they come like that? Do you see? I mean, they didn't just, oh yeah, I know who that guy is and ignore him. They're like, oh, this is important. Our shepherd's calling. And they start heading in. Yeah, what do you need? What do you need? What are we doing? Are we going somewhere else? Are we as smart as sheep? Are we able to recognize the voice of the shepherd. But now there's two points here, and they're both incredibly important. Number one, to hear the voice of the shepherd and follow. Number two, to ignore the voice of anybody that isn't. Okay, that's very important. Now, now every time we go down this road, it gets a little, we get a little nervous here. Because everybody, every one of us likely, who's been involved with church stuff over the years one way or another, has run into somebody who was sure God told them to do something that was just crazy. Now, sometimes God tells them to do something that's just crazy, and he really is telling them. Uh, you know, examples like Hosea. There really are crazy stories out there. But how do we discern? I want to suggest to you four ways that we can avoid the craziness here. Because on the one hand, what I'm saying to you is that Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to you now, and he's telling you things. He's giving you guidance in your life, and you need to follow it. You need to listen to him. You need to learn to discern his voice, just like those sheep in the video know the voice of their shepherd. But I want to give you some checks here so that you don't just get crazy. Number one, Scripture. We're blessed to have Scripture. Not everyone who has been a servant of God and a follower of God has had the privilege of Scripture. You think back to Abraham. He had to discern the voice of God without the benefit of Scripture. Moses. The different ones at different times who had to discern the voice of God without Scripture. We have the benefit of Scripture. So, so if you think you hear Jesus telling you to do something that's completely inconsistent with Scripture, okay, that's probably not Jesus. Because he's not going to do that. So it's incredibly important, since we have this revealed speaking of God, it's important for us to know it and to take advantage of what we have. So scripture can help you and keep you from just going off on some sort of a crazy thing claiming that God told you to do this. What's another way? Trusted spiritual friends. It's important to have people in your life who aren't afraid to tell you they think you're crazy. And it's important to be the kind of person who is open to letting people tell them, I think you're crazy. Or I think that's a bad idea. Or I don't think you should do that. 
Because not everything every individual thinks is right. And that brings me to another point. And that is how important it is for us to have an awareness of the deceitfulness of self. Do you have an awareness of that in your life? Do you know the places in your own heart where you relish lying to yourself? We all do it. We all have those places. And we need people around us who can call us to account on it. And, and then beyond that, I would extend it out kind of beyond just the personal one-on-one -on -one interactions. This is why it's so important to be a part of a community of faith. This is why as soon as it's possible for us to be back in this space, it's so important for us to come here and be together. Because the being together helps guide us. It takes the edges off of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And it opens us up to the larger realities. So that we can safely listen to the voice of God without being deceived by God's enemy. So does it work? Does God really still speak to us today? Does God truly still lead us today? Well, I'm pretty bought in on the notion that he does. And it was because I believed that God actually did speak and was speaking. It was for that reason that what was it? I guess it was 28 years ago. I quit my job as a chemical engineer. I went to school for five years to be an engineer. And then I went out and I worked as a chemical engineer for five years. But I came to a conviction in my heart that I believed was the voice of God speaking to me saying, this is great, this was good. You needed to go down this road. You learned lots of things here. This is very important to the rest of your life, but this chapter's closing. And now I want you to quit your job and go to the seminary and become a pastor. There are those who could have argued I was crazy. But there were also some very strong spiritual voices in my life that said, no, I don't think you are crazy. And so I quit that. And my wife quit her direction. She was going of, of an English literature major and doing things. And we went to the seminary at Andrews University. And I, I studied to be a pastor. And she took a, an MA in New Testament. And now she teaches at Advent Health University, teaches religion. And it was that same voice that, that in a strange way, when we didn't expect it to happen, when we were living in Maryland, said, you need to move out to Yakima, Washington. What in the world? Why would I go there? It was because God called us there. And then after a few years from there, he said, it's time to go to Marietta, Georgia. And we went to Marietta, Georgia. And then after, after six years, he said, it's time, time to go to Apopka, Florida. Okay. So we went to Florida. 
And then nine and a half years later, he said, go to Boulder. Go to Boulder. And when you get there, at least for a little while, preach from the book of John. So I don't know why. I don't have all the answers. I just know that if I'm going to believe in this voice, and this voice will speak consistently through time, I need to obey the voice when it speaks. Whatever he does, whatever he says, do it. Do whatever he tells you. So what is Jesus telling you? What is Jesus telling you today, right now, as you sit here, as we're in this place, as we've wrestled with these assumptions, does Jesus speak? Is he speaking to me? As we hear the words of Mary when she says, do whatever he tells you, what is Jesus telling you today? What is your duty as a Christian? What is your duty today as a believer? Is he calling you to an engagement somewhere? Is he calling you to forgiveness? Is he calling you to love? Is he calling you to make a change in your life? Sometimes it's, it's very bold what he calls us to. Maybe he's talking to you regarding your blessings, your tithes and your offerings. A faithfulness to give of your increase to the sustaining of his purpose in the world. Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe there are relationships you need to begin to form and reach out. Maybe there are relationships you need to put an end to because they're not taking you where God would have you go. <clears throat> Maybe it's besetting sins in your life. There's a phrase from the old days. Maybe there's something in your life that you know is keeping you from the experience with God, the experience with friends, the experience with family. Maybe you're caught up in something that could destroy your home. What is Jesus saying to you today? Maybe he's saying, you're never going to learn to hear my voice if you don't hear it here first. Maybe he's saying, you have 24 hours every day. Can I, can I just have 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Jesus' mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I want to suggest that she's saying to you today, by extension, through the word, do whatever Jesus tells you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have sent your Holy Spirit 
We have not always honored the voice of Jesus through the Spirit in our lives. If we're going to believe that there was a Redeemer who came, and we're going to believe that he longs to transform our lives, then, then we need to believe that he speaks to us still and we can discern his voice. Give us those ears, the ears that hear. Lord, help us to be at least as smart as the sheep who can discern the voice of their shepherd from every other voice in this day. Speak to each of us. Lead us, guide us. Show us where you would have us go. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, my soul.